with you this morning. My name is Raymond. If you're a guest with us, I serve as one of the elders here. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 22. Our time together this morning will be greatly helped by you following along in a copy of God's Word, uh, where you can keep Psalm 22 open and in front of you the entire time. If you don't have a Bible that you can call your own, you should be able to just look underneath the seat in front of you. We have copies of God's Word there. We'd love for you to just reach out and grab one. If you don't have one that you can uh, read at home, please take that home with you. We'd love for you to have that as a gift from us to you so you can study and learn more about the Christ that we'll study about this morning. If you're a guest with us, we've actually been studying through the book of James, uh, his letter to the tribes in the dispersion, but for the last two weeks, we've taken a break from the book of James and we've given our attention to lament, a theme that we have observed in evening services where we've practiced lament, but not something that we've given a lot of positive teaching to. So last week, Dan Mason preached for us from Psalm 13, excellent sermon. If you were not here last week, I would highly encourage you to go online, listen to Dan's sermon, a great overview, not only of Psalm 13, but the topic of lament in general. This morning, we'll give our attention to Psalm 22. Tonight, Will Hall, one of our other pastors, will preach for us from Psalm 43, and then we will be back in the book of James. So I want to encourage you to to give your attention to learning with us about lament, because so much of the Bible gives attention to the topic of lament, specifically the book of Psalms. About one-third of the Psalms refer to lament or themes of lament. We saw that some last week. We'll see that again now. And if you want to study more about that, one of the most helpful things you can do is grab one of those books that Dan mentioned last week. I think we still have some at the Connection Center, Mark Vogrup's book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. That's a great introductory resource to the idea of lament. We're going to give our attention to Psalm 22. We're going to read the entire text, Psalm 22, verse 1. David writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us today. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. 
For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. You are my help. Come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth Eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. It is a light unto our feet. It is a lamp unto our path. And Father, we ask now that you would help us as we turn our attention to your word. Help us to focus our minds in these moments. We know that the enemy would seek to snatch the good word that we are studying this morning. God, we ask that you would help us to focus. And God, we ask as we learn again about lament, as we turn our attention to this psalm in particular, that you would write these eternal life truths on our hearts and cause us to walk in your everlasting paths. And we ask all of this in the name of our God, who's revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. So much of the Christian life is learning to live in the great contradiction. We have been taught on the one hand that God is good. He is all-powerful. God is gentle and lowly. He's all-knowing. He's steadfast in his love toward all of his people. He's everywhere present. We're not far from him. But on the other hand, our experience in the world is filled with pain. As we're burdened by anxiety. And we're crushed by our own personal depression. We've been broken from the affliction of abuse. Mourning poor health and mental health. Grieving loneliness. Just this past week, as many of you know, I flew to Louisville for the funeral service of my friend's 17-year-old son who died tragically seven days before Christmas, 11 days before he turned 18, just shy of his birthday, after a long battle with mental illness. Haddon was introverted. He loved animals. He had a vivid imagination. There are two pictures of him in my study that have been here since the day that I arrived. He enjoyed being outdoors and often traveled with his family to the Rocky Mountains, 
of Colorado, as well as to the lake waters of the Toledo Bend Reservoir in southeast Texas. He learned to play the guitar and over the last year spent hours playing the guitar just like his father. He loved exercise, he loved sports, football, baseball, lacrosse, ice hockey. Why was his life cut short? Why didn't God deliver him from his anguish when he prayed? Why do his parents now have to live without their oldest son? I do not know. And the Bible does not try to solve the problem of the contradiction of God's goodness on the one hand and Haddon's pain and death on the other hand. But the good news, as we'll see today, is that it actually gives us language to vocalize our sorrow to God as we live in the midst of the great contradiction. We'll see this in Psalm 22. This psalm is broken into two parts. The first part gives voice to the king's agony in prayer. The second part gives voice to the king's testimony and praise. It's two parts, one psalm. So we'll have two simple points to guide us. The king's prayer, verses 1 through 21. The king's praise, verses 22 through 31. But before we begin to fill in our outline, notice how the psalms begin, this psalm begins. Look again at the superscript of Psalm 22. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. This psalm begins like so many of the psalms with a superscript at the beginning telling us something of the context or how it was to be used telling us that it is set to the tune of the Doe of the Dawn, which means absolutely nothing to you or to me because we don't know the tune. And yet it teaches us that this psalm, this prayer, whether it's referring to events in David's life that we're able to identify or events that we're not able to identify, was actually regularly and practically used in the context of corporate worship to encourage anyone Anyone between David's life and Jesus' life, between Jesus' life and this day today, who has felt God forsakenness. That is helpful to us because it is possible for us to be so interested in the connections between David's life and Jesus' life, between this psalm and Jesus' final words, that we actually miss that this psalm, too, is a psalm of lament. A psalm of lament that is actually inviting us into the perplexity of the king's suffering as we learn how to appropriate the words of his prayer and emulate his praise in the context of the gathered congregation. Prayer that isn't exactly what we would expect if we were paying attention as we read. Perhaps you noticed that David spent the majority of his prayer detailing his experience in prayer rather than making requests in prayer. Just scan over the psalm again with me. Verse one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a question, it's not a request. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Again, another question, not a request. Verse six, but I am a worm and not a man. Verse seven, all who see me mock me. They make their mouths at me. They wag their heads. He's telling them what he's experiencing, but he's not making a request. Verse 14, I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. 
My strength is dried up like the potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. All, at this point, explaining, chronicling, detailing his experience. It's so detailed that we actually become uncomfortable because we're not used to praying like this. We're not used to praying like this, it seems to me, because we assume that since we know rightly that God knows everything, God knows everything before we're going to ask him, he knows everything that's going on in our life and in everyone else's life, that because God already knows, he doesn't really care to hear about it from us in prayer. So rather than doing what David did, spending the majority of our prayer explaining the contradiction, the burden, why we need help, we spend the majority of our prayers detailing our requests. God, since you know it all, this is what I want you to do. I want this, I want this, I need this. I want you to do this for this person and this to this person about this situation so that I don't have to deal with this anymore. But David does just the opposite, doesn't he? He spends the vast majority of his prayer, 18 of 21 verses, praying what he feels, detailing his experience very clearly before God and for all of us to observe, chronicling his pain because it mattered. Brothers and sisters, Psalm 22 teaches us that God cares about our sorrows. He cares about our sorrows and our experience of those sorrows. He cares about them as much as he cares about our requests, enough to let us vocalize them to him in prayer, that it is right for the Christian to come and to pray this way before God. So if you've ever thought, God does not care about what I think, And God really doesn't want to know what it is that I'm actually going through in this life. God doesn't seem to notice me. I pray that this psalm would be used by God this morning to change your mind and to help you articulate yourself in prayer. And I pray that that experience in prayer would erupt as it did in David's life in verses 22 through 31 in praise. Praise in the congregational gathering as we live in the midst of the great contradiction as well as in our daily worship as we live in the midst of the great contradiction. That's the lay of the land for Psalm 22. So now let's turn our attention to the psalm. Notice first the king's prayer. Again, careful Bible readers saw that the king's prayer isn't exactly what we would expect. In suffering, in trial, in pain, whatever's going on in David's life, he's lamenting. And when we're lamenting, we assume that God already knows what we feel and probably doesn't care. So rather than express what we're experiencing, we make lots of requests of what we need him to do. Help me to find a job. Heal my child. Save my mom. Change my spouse. Give me a friend. But that is not how David prays here. In fact, it's quite the opposite for David. Rather than minimize his feelings and maximize his requests, he maximizes his feelings and he minimizes his requests. Just look how he begins in verse one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? The king begins with a question, not a request, because it is common among Christians, it is a common Christian experience to think that our suffering means that God has forgotten us, that our suffering is punitive. It means that that God has forsaken us. Because we did something wrong, God is going to put something bad in our life. When we do wrong, we get wrong. When we do right, we get right. And so the common human experience is, I'm experiencing this because God doesn't love me. 
You feel that. David felt that. We feel that God's turned a deaf ear to us. If God was really listening, things wouldn't be going this way. If God was really watching, none of this would have happened. Haddon wouldn't be dead if God had time to care. It's the common experience of the human, but that doesn't mean that it's true. David didn't think it was true, but that didn't stop him from telling God how he felt. Oh my God, verse two, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Whatever is going on in David's life, and the psalm is unclear, people speculate all types of things. David is so distraught that he could not sleep. By day and by night, I'm praying. He's so distraught that he weeps uncontrollably day and night, day after day, week after week. After my father passed in 2009, I cried and I cried and I cried. But one of the things that I remember to be the most disorienting and confusing for me personally was when I would find myself crying while I was getting ready in the morning, sometimes while I was just driving down the road, while I was sitting at my desk trying to do my work. In those moments when there was nothing necessarily wrong, I would just weep and find myself weeping. It was uncontrollable and unstoppable. David tells us the God-forsakenness, the feeling of God-forsakenness is sometimes so overwhelming that we can't seem to control the emotions. We don't know why we're breaking, and we don't really even know how to explain the brokenness. It just is day and night, and it's always there, just nagging at us. David tells us that those emotions, though they feel far off, make us feel that God is distant or just right behind us, dogging our steps, and yet he still makes no request. Rather, he interrupts his lament. Notice what he does. He teaches us what to do. He interrupts his lament by stating what he knows to be true of God's past action, even when it isn't his present experience. Verse three, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and would not be put to shame. In what feels like God-forsakenness, God, David reminds himself of God's greatest act of deliverance, certainly thinking of God's great act of deliverance in the Exodus and says, I don't feel that you're listening to me. I'm praying day and night and it seems that you do not care, but I know that you are holy. I know that you are good, you are righteous, you are true, you are sovereign, you rule, you reign, you are aware, you are everywhere present. And I know that you heard my ancestors when they trusted you enough to pray to you, so I'm gonna pray to you. They trusted you when it looked bleak. They trusted you when they were enslaved. They trusted you when it did not look like you would deliver and you heard the prayers of my ancestors and you delivered them from the oppression of the Egyptians. It is David's way of saying, God, I know that you have acted in the past. I know that you have done great things for your people. Will you do that again? And why aren't you doing that right now? Why have you done great things in the past but seem unable to do great things in the present when I'm struggling with mental illness? Or when I have been overwhelmed and belittled by the words that someone has spoken to me? 
or when I'm isolated because of another sin against me, when I feel God-forsakenness, why not now when I feel less than human because of my suffering? Verse six. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. It's not that it's just bad or even that it's painful. The suffering makes him feel less than human as he's despised by some and mocked by others. Friends, it's not that it's often just bad, but it's that your suffering and mine makes us feel less than human, like a worm and not a man or a woman, because no man or woman should be treated that way or spoken to like that or experience that kind of pain and sorrow or live with that type of absence. And what's worse is it seems that everyone else thinks that it's your fault because you're experiencing it, so they belittle you and they mock you or you interpret them as belittling you and mocking you, despised, forsaken. God doesn't love me. People don't love me. Why am I even here? No one seems to notice. No one seems to care. And when they do try to express that they have observed, they say the very unhelpful, foolish things like, God knows that you'd be better off that way. He's in a better place. Well, why isn't the better place right here with me? And why wouldn't God think I'd be better off with what you have? David knows that the suffering is not just overwhelming. The suffering makes us feel wrong things and think wrong things. We feel that we're not even worthy of inhabiting the same space as other people. And what's worse is that everyone else thinks it's your fault. David tells us that the God-forsakenness is dehumanizing, and yet he still hasn't made a request. He questions, he's expressing himself, he's making sure that it is clear what he feels. He just continues questioning and articulating what he's going through as he once again interrupts his lamentation with what he knows to be true, even if he doesn't feel it to be true, teaching us to do the same, to interrupt the despair, to interrupt the depression, to interrupt the anxiety, to interrupt the lamentation in our life, reminding ourselves, teaching ourselves, proclaiming to ourselves of what is true even when we don't feel that it's true. Verse nine, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust in you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. And what is certainly some of the most unusual language in the psalm, and is, seems to be some of the most unusual language in the Bible, David actually describes God as a midwife. A midwife who comes and took him from the womb and cared for him in those most vulnerable moments and laid him in his mother's lap so that he might receive nourishment, so that he might be cared for as his God. And in all of those ways, David is reminding himself of God's maternal affection towards him. Like a mother who loves their newborn child, so God, you have loved me. 
you have cared for me. You have shown that you have seen me in my brokenness. You care for me in all of the vulnerable moments of my life. He says, I know that you love me. You gave me life. You have preserved my life. I know that you love me, but where are you? Where are you now? And why are you so far from me? Why are you far from me when trouble is near? Why are you far from me when it seems that there is no one to help, when I actually need help? You've shown concern in the past. You saved my ancestors. You brought me into the world. You've kept me alive to this very moment. So why not show more concern now in the present? Friends, isn't that always the question that we're asking? You were there. Where are you? I know he's done great things, so why isn't he doing them now? Why does he answer no to some of our prayers? And why am I so lonely when I am most in need? Have you ever felt like that? When you are most in need, you need God and you need a friend, it seems that he's not listening and no one cares. That's one of the great problems of the great contradiction, that we will grieve with someone for a bit, but oh, how quickly we move right back on while they live right in the midst of all of the disruption. We've moved on past the chaos and they're still in the midst of the flame. The funeral was Thursday. Barry and Jessica have not moved on, but I've come home and here you are and it's another day and another week for me. Friends, that's how we live our lives and David knows it. Where are you when I need you? Not where are you when I don't need you. Where are you when I need you? What is the whole point of all of this religion? If when I most need God, sovereign, ruling, reigning, supreme, good, just, powerful, mighty, gone. Distant. Not answering. Dead mom. Dead kid. Cancer, lost job, loneliness, isolation. Where are you now? David takes all of that to the Lord in prayer, and it makes us uncomfortable because I would assume many of us don't pray like that. We don't pray like that because we don't really like talking about it. We take the standard over-the-counter prescriptions of deny it, Ignore it, don't pay attention to it, and it will all be okay. And David looks it square in the face and brings it all to the Lord in prayer when it makes him feel less than human and isolated. David knew that feeling, and he took it to the Lord in prayer, but he still made no request. Instead, he continues to articulate his pain. Verse 12, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. 
continuing to use some of the most strange language for us because it's language that we don't use. But in the ancient world, it was common to use your language that described your enemies as beasts, bulls and wolves and dogs and lions, ravening and scavenging, destroyers, those who would come and they would prey on you when you're most vulnerable. When you need to lay down and rest, they're lurking and prowling. They're out to get you. So destructive is their pursuit that David says that he feels like he's just water poured out everywhere. That his whole life is just melting like the wax of a candle. It's just just disintegrating in front of him. Everything that once was stable and had a shape is falling apart, and now everything is just like quicksand underneath his feet. And the heat is so intense that everything's dried up and he has nothing left to give. No more energy, no more tears, no more prayer. He's parched. He doesn't even know what to say. What would I say if I had something to say? I have nothing to say, and I don't know what I'd say if I did have words. There are no words. While he's ridiculed and mistreated, mocked and belittled, you're the king. God loves you. So utterly devastated that he finally asks, when he finally comes to the Lord with a request, verse 19, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. After 18 verses of describing how he feels, what he's experiencing, the brokenness in his life, using words that are poetic but filled with imagery, trying to teach us something about how to express ourselves to God that actually express the common human experience of probably the majority of the people in here where we feel completely and utterly devastated by the sorrows in our life. David quickly requests, don't be far off, come quickly, deliver my soul, save me. He doesn't lay out a list of, God, here's all the things that you need to do to get it right. He just says, come, come quickly. Come. Come as you, have came, yeah, you came in the past. Come. And in so doing, he does what we're not good at as he talks about his suffering and pain. He vocalizes his sorrow and lament in prayer, and he gives us language for prayer, and he teaches us that God actually desires us for casting, to cast all of our anxieties upon him. Why, Peter taught us. Because he cares for you. Friends, he cares about your anxiety and depression. And he cares about your family conflict. And he cared and still cares about the death that you're grieving. And the loneliness that you're experiencing. And the brokenness that's in your life because of the sin of others and your own sin. God cared and he still cares about all of those things in your life. And we never graduate beyond having to take something like that to him in prayer. He wants us to bring it all to him because the reality is, is that none of those things are too big for our God. Our prayers are not too big for our God to answer. Those problems are not too great for him to solve or him to be invested in. We bring it all to the Lord in prayer. We set it all at his feet because we remind ourselves that our great God is a consuming fire, And our great God hears the prayers of his people, even when he doesn't answer them or meet them in the timetable or in the ways that we think that he should. 
David teaches us how to pray. Don't be far from me. What I want is resolution, but what I actually need, don't be far from me. What I want is resolution, but what I actually need is I need you to come quickly. I need you to bring an end to all of this and come back and make all things right. What I want is resolution, but what I actually need is for you to deliver my soul and to remind me of the redemption that is mine in your Savior. What I want is resolution, but what I really need is for you to save me. And if you have done those things, Father, and help me through this difficult hour. And the king's prayer is a model for us that bursts forth in worship. Notice second, the king's praise. Careful Bible readers noticed a shift from verse 21 to verse 22 when we read it earlier, a shift from prayer to praise as David describes his response to the other side of this sorrow in his life. Verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from the afflicted, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear me. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Though it isn't always the case, and certainly isn't the case for all of us in this room, at some point there was resolution for David. One of the difficult things is that not all of us experience resolution, but David experienced resolution. So the psalm tells us that he went to the temple and he told of God's answer to his prayers in the midst of the congregation. And in the presence of all of the assembled witnesses, he did what we often don't do in our own lives. He gathered with the people of God and he said, that thing that I've been praying for, that thing that you've been praying for for me, God has heard that prayer. He has answered that prayer. Here are all of the ways that God has fulfilled those prayers. He has done great things again for us. God has brought resolution. Praise the Lord. The covenant-making, covenant-keeping God heard the prayers of his people. He answered the prayers of his people. He heard the prayers of our ancestors. He answered the prayers of our ancestors. And he heard my prayer, and he answered my prayer. And he will do the same for you. Now, let's all praise the Lord. He didn't despise David. He didn't remain hidden, even though David thought that he would remain hidden forever. He heard his prayer, and he answered. So he gathered them all together, and they worshiped. Can you just imagine? Friends, to celebrate God's great answer to prayer, they gather uh, the people together, they take an animal, and they kill it, they celebrate with an offering, and they sing praises in the temple to God, saying, thank you, you have done great things. All of which presupposes something. That David, prior to his answer to prayer, had actually invited people into his suffering so that they could rejoice with him. Brothers and sisters, one of the difficult things about lament that you need to get if you don't get anything else is that you are prohibiting God's work of grace in your life and in the life of this church, members in particular, when you do not invite people into your suffering so that they can bear the burden with you. You are prohibiting God's work of grace in your life and in the life of the church because not only are they not able to bear the burden with you, but they are incapable of actually rejoicing with you when God brings resolution if God does. So David has invited these people in to his suffering. 
And he's modeled for us how to pray. And he's modeling for them and for us what to do in response to answered prayer. Worship, thanks, praise, thanksgiving to God so that they can pray and so that you and I can pray. So that those who grieved might rejoice. And praise be to God when the assembled have gathered together. So David says in verse 26, may your hearts live forever. But that praise reaches far beyond the congregation. It reached beyond David's personal experience to the congregation, and it extends past the congregation to other people, beyond even the borders of the land of Israel. See, another thing that David teaches us is that his suffering wasn't only or even primarily about him. That's how we think of suffering. My suffering, my sorrows, my answers to prayer, my needs, my wants, my desires. David brings it all to the Lord in prayer, but the congregation is involved. The blessing goes to the congregation, and it extends past the congregation, verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. How will they do that? They will do that as they practice what has been recorded, where David saw his life being an extension of how God works in the world. God's people suffer, they pray, God answers prayer, they praise. For kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. David knew that his story was just a small example of what God was doing in the world. A story of lament, of hearing, of God caring, of God answering prayers. And he wants all to know of how God meets his people in their pain and suffering in the midst of the great contradiction. All the families of all nations, they will know that this is the God that we serve. He is the God who meets his people right there in the middle of it. He hears their prayers and he answers their prayers. And not only the people who were alive then, but David had even greater hope. Beyond just his family and his friends and his people and his nation to other nations and future generations, Verse 30, posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to his coming, uh, to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. That God has done great things. The testimony of God's people will be a resounding praise. We serve the God who hears the prayers of his people. Praise the Lord. But what about for all of those people who are living in the first half of the psalm? And never, like David, make it to the second half of the psalm. What about for those of you who are here, who are living in the midst of the great contradiction in the first half of the psalm, and might never see the answer to your prayers, to be able to give praise like David did in the second half of the psalm? I want you to look with me again at verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Can it be that these words were prayed by the very same person who gave voice to the great praise of God at the end of the very same psalm? It can, it was, 
by David and by Jesus. The four gospel narratives tell us that these words are words that Jesus took up at the end of his life as he identified not only with David, but from, with all of the worship, worshipers between David's day and his day, between Jesus' day and today, who have experienced God forsakenness. And in so doing, they teach us that there is nothing that we will face in this life, including dying, that the Savior has not already entered into. This past week, one of the things that I learned as I was going about visiting with families about Haddon and his death and his untimely death was something called sympathetic resonance. I didn't know what sympathetic resonance was, and to be honest, I'm not sure that I entirely understand it very much now, but if I understand a little bit about it, one of the things is that if you have something like a tuning fork and you strike it, and there's another tuning fork nearby, it will pick up the same frequency as the one that was struck. There is a resonance from the one that is struck by the one that isn't struck. And in this way, the psalm teaches us that for the believer, when we're suffering, we can be assured and rest assured that the Savior understands, that there is a sympathetic resonance, that the one who was struck understands everything that we are going through in our life. And when we are struck, he is able to relate to us. There is a resonance. He is able to understand our burdens and our sorrows. Jesus knows exactly what it is like to experience God forsakenness. And we see that clearly in the Bible. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew 27. Matthew 27. Just one of the four times these words are picked up by the Lord Jesus at the end of his life. And we will begin to see some of the many times that this psalm is referred to. Verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and they led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them, casting lots. They sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put a charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers who were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders, they mocked him and said, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Jesus 
knows exactly what it's like to experience God-forsakenness. And up to this point, he hasn't yet even been struck. He has experienced the ridicule, the mocking, the shaming, the belittling. But Matthew continues. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemai sabachthani, that is, my God. My God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of God. Jesus knew exactly what it was like to experience the God forsakenness. He experienced it for his people taking up the lament of David and appropriating the song that they would have sung in the great congregation many times. All of the people who would have come and praised God and tried to express their lament. My God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus picks up that same lament. Why have you forsaken me? Struck for those who have been struck. Resonating with their pain as he himself is experiencing pain. Suffering and dying in their place so that they ultimately wouldn't have to suffer and die. Doing what David was unable to do. David was able to give us language. And David was able to teach us. And David was able to talk of death. But Jesus goes beyond that. Jesus goes all the way to the grave. And he comes out on the other side showing that he bursts forth into life. It goes from life to death to life for Jesus. And Jesus is proclaiming the same to us. Life to death to life for all who believe and trust and know that I too know exactly what it is like to experience what you've experienced. But for all who follow me, it will not have the final word. For all who follow me, it will not have the last word. There will be life and life everlasting. And friends, that is true as much today for you as it is for my friends Barry and Jessica. Most people know that Haddon's namesake, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, was a great preacher and writer, less people know that Spurgeon also wrestled mightily with what would have been identified today as clinical depression. But Spurgeon called it a severe sickness, a frightful depression. Spurgeon wrote about his severe sickness on numerous occasions, and in one sermon he described his experience this way. I was lying upon my couch during this week, last week, and my spirits were sunken so low that I could weep by the hour like a child And yet I never knew what I wept for. But a very slight thing will move me to tears just now. On another occasion, Spurgeon wrote, I have suffered many times from severe sickness and frightful mental depression, seeking almost to despair. Almost every year I've been laid aside for a season, for flesh and blood cannot bear the strain of what I endure. At least such flesh and blood as mine. I believe, however, the affliction was necessary to me and has answered many salutary ends. Spurgeon suffered mightily under mental anguish and hot tears streaming down his face. And yet he is an example to us just like David. 
an example of what scripture means when it says to us that through many trials and tribulations we will enter the kingdom of God. He knew the sympathetic resonance of the Savior, the Savior who himself was acquainted with grief, who knew why he was suffering for his people, who was struck so that all who trust in him by faith might know life even though they live with pain. Friends, that is a great hope of the gospel. It tells us that our Savior knows and he understands and he ultimately will deliver us even if we do not experience that deliverance in this life. Like David who was pointing forward, David the poet turned David the prophet and pointed forward to Jesus Christ. So now here we have these words from David the poet and the prophet who proclaimed to us not simply deliverance in this life. David cried out to God, so you should cry out to God. David understood uh, suffering, so you should understand that God understands your suffering. David pointed beyond himself, better than he knew, pointing us to the Savior who says, there's hope and resurrection will come. Relief might come. It might not come in this life, but it will come. It will come on that day. And friends, if you're here and you're not a Christian and all of this sounds strangely odd, the gospel that we proclaim to you is one of a savior who knows exactly what it is like to suffer like you suffer and yet suffered in your place. He suffered when you should suffer ultimately and forever. And he died as a substitute on the cross so that if you would trust in him and believe in him, you might have everlasting life. But believer, for you, this is teaching us afresh. The Savior knows. He understands. He cares. And he reminds us of that care, not only by appropriating these words, but demonstrating it in his great love for us on the cross by what he did for us and for our salvation. You see, for the believer, it is completely different. The Israelites, David at this time, he would have been only able to point back to the Exodus. But now here we are, and we don't point back to the Exodus. We point to God's concern for us in a new way. We remind ourselves of this truth. How did God show his great concern for us? Not by taking away all the pain, not by answering all of our prayer requests, not by making sure that we somehow escaped sorrows in this life, but by sending his son to live and die and live again so that if we would trust in him, we might live forever too. Friends, we point to the cross and we remind ourselves, this is God's great act showing us of his great concern for us. He has heard and he has delivered and he will ultimately deliver us and save. Friends, in our suffering and our sorrow, we bring it all to the Lord in prayer and we remind ourselves of these great truths. But we don't just remind ourselves of these truths from the Bible or from preaching. We remind ourselves of these truths as we come to this table and observe this sacrament in just a few moments that actually proclaimed the exact same thing to us. Life to death to life. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, while he was still alive, he spoke to his disciples gathered in a room and he would have spoken to them of what he had come to do and what he will do and that there were traitors in his midst. And he said, because of those traitors, I will go to the cross and I will die on the cross for all of you. Jesus is teaching them that his body would be broken that his blood would be spilt, that his life would be taken. But all of this was to be for them. And with this same sacrament, proclaiming the exact same thing to us, life to death to life, it's proclaiming to us that we can experience something in this life because of what Christ has done for us, resurrection life, hope of everlasting life, because of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, 
As we gather around this table and we observe this sacrament of baptism in just a few moments, they too are giving us language to lament and to praise, to pray and to worship as we consider all that God has done for us. Friend, if you're here and you're a believer, if you've repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ by faith, then this table and observing this baptism in just a moment are a reminder to you of what God has done for you. If you've repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've been baptized, if you are a member of an evangelical church that preaches the same gospel that this church preaches, we invite you to come to the table in just a few moments to worship with us as we sing about the Savior's sufferings and as we give praise in the midst of the great contradiction. And we invite you also in just a few moments to once again give thanks for God's work of grace in your life and Rebecca's life and all who would trust in him as she, because of her trust in Christ, is buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in the newness of life and hope that a day will come when God will ultimately wipe away all of the pain and resolve all of the tensions in the midst of the great contradiction for us. But friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, we're here to tell you that the great thing that you can do is to remain in your seat. As people come forward in just a few moments, stay in your seat and ask God to reveal himself to you in Jesus Christ. And if you want to learn more about that, there will be pastors at the exits in just a few moments. They would love to open the Bible with you and to tell you more about Jesus Christ and him crucified. Friends, I'm gonna ask you to stand with me as I'm praying the people who are coming to serve the table are going to come forward. What we're gonna ask for you to do is we're gonna ask for you to come and to break off a piece of the bread. You're gonna take that and a cup of the juice and then go to the outside row and go back to your seat. And in a few moments, we'll observe the Lord's Supper together. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, a gospel that proclaims to us the death of the Son of God and the resurrection life that is ours in Christ. But Father, we not only thank you for the gospels, we thank you, Father, for the gospel as it has been revealed to us in the Old Testament in Psalm 22. A gospel that teaches us that we can come to you not only with praise when things are going well, but with pain when we are broken beyond all that we would have ever imagined in our life. And that in the midst of that great pain and contradiction, you, the one true and living God, hear our prayers, care for us, deliver us, rescue us, and promise that you will safely lead us home. Father, as we observe this sacrament, the Lord's Supper, and see the sacrament of baptism in just a few moments. We pray that today, as we have confessed through song and through reading your word and the preaching of your word, that once again now, through the visible demonstration and proclamation of your word, we might give thanks for all that you have done for us in Christ. And we ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus, the Christ of God. Amen.